from Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami. We tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello, and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, and listeners, first of all, thank you for listening. It's hard to believe that this show is just over two years old, and that we've grown in the ways that we have. Not that anyone is counting, but we are just a few hundred downloads away from our 10,000th download. It blows me away that there are so many of you out here listening to the show on a regular basis. On that note, please keep sharing the show with your friends and colleagues. Follow us on LinkedIn. And if you have a moment, drop us a review. This is literally how people find podcasts that they're interested in. Over the course of some years, it's how I found some of my favorite shows, from Bloomberg's Masters of Business with Barry Rithold's to uh, the China Africa podcast with Kobus von Stanton and Eric Olander, to even Mike McElrath's CPR podcast, and even the guests for this week's show, and a group we've been excited to be collaborating with for a long time now. This week, we welcome the one, the only, the Arbitration Station. That's right, all three of them. Joel Dahlquist, Brian Kotick, and Sadia Bhatti. That's right, remember her? Season one. Stopped by for a marathon, but fun session, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It may be hard to remember, but pre-pandemic, there were like not even a handful of regular podcast, webinar, content creators, and now we have a whole array, many of which we hope to see and feature later this season. Examples like Svenja Watchell over at the Digital Coffee Break, Kabir and Mandy at Tag Time, Neil and Shian at Conversations with Neil, and one of my new favorites, My Arbitration with Victoria Perth. All of these initiatives go a long way towards facilitating more conversation and inviting more professionals into the field. In any case, that's enough for now. Today is a longer episode, but I know you'll enjoy it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the Arbitration Station. And we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. With me today, we have our first occasion, our first occurrence of an old friend of the show, someone way back in season one. That's right. You would go to go back in time. You would recall her episode. And she has gone on to, to bigger and better things, to, to other podcasts since she was on this show. And that is Sadia Bhatti. Sadia, welcome back to the show. Hi, Chris. It's such a pleasure to be connected with you again. Thank you so much for having me again. Well, absolutely. Thank you for being here. And so, you know, I made reference to that, um, to, to what you've been doing since in just a little bit of the, the terms. But you've joined another podcast called The Arbitration Station. W what is that about? Can you tell us about, you know, one, we'll get into it in a lot of different ways, but we'll talk about first. So this, this episode is recorded. And then a couple of months later, you're doing The Arbitration Station. How did that come about? I know. I'm sure there's a link. Chris, to be honest, you're the one who, you know, when we we spoke together about the podcast, it was the very, very first time I was involved in a podcast at all. 
Um, and, uh, and, you know, a couple of weeks later, um, the guys from the Arbitration Station podcast, um, they were actually looking for a co-host for some time. I didn't know that. And uh, they got in touch and, uh, and you know, that's it. The rest is history. So I've been, that was one of the big developments, I think, since we last spoke. So now I'm actually doing the same job as you on the side as uh, hosting another podcast and uh, it's called the Arbitration Station and yeah. Um, and, and since then, just a couple of additional, uh, additional, you know, related activities actually uh, to the arbitration world. And one second, sorry, 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 sorry. I don't want to, 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 to miss out on this. So can you give us a brief 30 second to 60 second sort of just recap, you know, for those that haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet? Yes, of course. So um, I'm Sadia Bhatti, and I'm counsel at Isidroid Well, which is um, a law firm uh, with their mothership in Paris, but they also have an office in London, which is where I practice. Um, and I do a mix of investment arbitration and commercial arbitration, um, and I've been practicing for um, over a decade now. Um, and I specialize in, well, in fact, I do all kinds of disputes, but I mostly specialize in the Africa and uh, MENA region. Yeah. Well, sure. No. And I mean, and, you know, Sadia being extremely humble about the that whole description, she does a million different things. And maybe I kind of preloaded that by saying try and limit it to 60 seconds. But, you know, is involved with all sorts of really cool things. And I'm excited to, to catch up on what she's been doing since. So stepping back to the things you've been up to since. Um, Tell us about it. What have you been doing? Yeah, so um, I, and that's what I was getting into. But as you know, and you do that yourself, um, being a busy practitioner in the arbitration world means that you're all you're asking for. You know, that's the core. You know, activity that I have. I, I have to counsel on, um, on a variety of matters, uh, which keeps me really busy. Um, but at the same time, I'm also involved in the wider arbitration community. Um, really love. Um, and since we last spoke, um, continued being involved um, in a number of associations um, and activities. So the podcast being one. There's also another recent one. Maybe I should start with the most recent new things that I'm doing. I'm moderating the online forum Ultimate, which I believe we also discussed at our. Um, during a, 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 the first interview when I was with your episode, I was I was saying how amazing this forum was, um, you know, Ojimed and and encouraging the younger generation to join young Ojimed. Um, so since then, I, um, uh, I, I Sophie Napard, who I who I think is, is fabulous, actually stepped down from her role as moderator, and uh, and so I I I came you know in uh, as a moderator on the forum. So I've been doing that. Um, and also just continuing doing the training sessions and conferences and mentorship um, activities that I was busy doing beforehand, but maybe even more so now with the pandemic. Uh, I've been involved uh, with, uh, I'm involved with a number of associations, but there's one that I have my heart, which is the SICA, um, which is a center for um, uh, arbitration in Pakistan. Um, and the most recent thing that I've done, in addition to trainings that we did in person before the pandemic in Pakistan, right. is uh, setting up uh, a journal and a blog uh, for practitioners who are interested in Pakistan. So I'm uh, uh, part of the editorial committee of, of that um, of that journal. So th- these are a couple of, of new things that I've added since 20, uh, 2019. Sure, and um, and we'll work we'll work backwards on that. Um, I recall from that first conversation that we had that there was um, an event, I think it was going to be the first one or maybe the inaugural one, 
in Pakistan. Um, now, I guess the retrospective two years later, how did it go? I mean, I assume that it was a, a big success. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, Chris, thank you so much for asking about this. It's, uh, it, it really, we spent a lot of time putting it together. It wasn't actually the very first one, the very first one I had done in 2017 in Lahore. Uh, and we, we, it was with Yangika who did a training. But this one was the very first time we did it at such a wider scale. We did it at Islamabad, so in the capital. And we had people from the government also participating. And we had a number of practitioners from Pakistan also participating um, as speakers. Um, and it was a two-day program. The second day was a full training. The first day was a conference. And then the second day we also had, and that was one of the, the most happy about, we did our virtual women panel. And uh, it was really, really uh, well attended by men and women. Uh, and the speakers were, uh, of course, all women interested in arbitration in Pakistan. So it went, I have to say, we were uh, exceeded our expectations with the number of um, of people who agreed to participate as speakers. There were a number of firms that sent through people to travel in Islamabad, and um, a number of people from them were, were dear friends, and they recognized themselves. So I want to thank them again for agreeing to speak, and they were wonderful. Um, and on the other hand, we made so many nice connections in Pakistan with the people there, and they've just been uh, really well received, the whole training program and everything, especially meeting women in Pakistan for me was was a very big one, and I saw those tremendous um, women practicing arbitration uh, in Pakistan. You know, so it was really good to to see that. Well, sure, and I mean, did was the were you able to carry on this event during pan during COVID times? I mean, was there a virtual version, or is it going to resume um, on the other end, or or what's the outlook sort of seem to be? Yeah, so. Um, of course, the pandemic happened just a couple of months later, right? Um, and so we had so many plans of doing it again. And what we did was we did a series of webinars instead. Um, so we did a couple, actually. Um, some were more tailored on, for example, force measure disputes in the construction industry. Um, others were focused on um, key tips and advice for practitioners who want to enter the world of arbitration. Uh, so we did to did those through webinars and 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 it, it, it you know at first you're always a bit skeptical right last year this time we were just kind of like how's this all going to work um but in fact you know it works really well and in fact there's a lot of advantages of having doing this online first you don't have to travel <laughs> and the cost of travel both you know financial and environmental wise um you know we all know that this has so in a way, it's good. But most importantly as well, I think it's the um, ability to share knowledge with a lot of people who wouldn't have access to information otherwise because they wouldn't be able to join the conference because they wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be able to travel exactly or um, or just didn't have the means to participate otherwise. So uh, I think that this has brought something really good to the world of arbitration in terms of sharing knowledge. Um and, you know, podcasting is part of this, right? It's, it's something you can just put in your ears and listen to whenever you want. Um, and now it's really great that conferences are all doing that, that they re record their sessions and then you can listen to whenever you want while, you know, uh, at the day that you please, at the time that you please. And that's been really good. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, it's um, kind of this phenomenon of, you know, you can wake up here in Portugal and by breakfast, you can be in London, and then in for the afternoon, you can be in Islamabad, and then in Hong Kong, and it's, I mean, it's really kind of cool, huh? It's cool, 
and you can uh, have Gary Bourne in your living room or, you know, whoever it is and listen to that or, or Chris Campbell and, uh, you know, just uh, have a run with him in your ears. And uh, no, it's, it's, it's terrific. I think it's, it's brought a lot of good things and I've had a lot of good, you know, feedback from especially people from the jurisdictions that couldn't go to London or Paris, et cetera. Um, and, and all the big places of arbitration who are now being much more connected with, uh, with the people um, in arbitration in these, in, this, in these jurisdictions. Well, sure. No, and that, that sounds amazing, Sadia. Um, can you tell us where they can find, um, I guess, the series of webinars and, you know, I guess for the next iterations of the event and maybe this journal and blog as well so they can check it out. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I'll, I'll send you a link to the CFA website and I have all the details are on the website and you can send submissions for your articles and your blog posts um, on that website. And uh, with respect to Ojimed, I again encourage all people to join, uh, whether it's young Ojimed because you're a younger practitioner or Ojimed because you're a more you know seasoned practitioner. I think everyone should, um, should join this wonderful forum to exchange ideas. Um, so yeah. Well, that's right. And, um, and we'll give a tip of the cap and a shout out to Sophie Napperth as well. She was a guest last season. She's great. Um, and it's very cool that you were able to step in um, after Maybe. and moderate. <laughs> um, so, so keeping, yeah. yeah. So, so, so Sadia, um, so then before we leave this topic, I guess fully, um, what are you working on now? What do you have upcoming? What should people be keeping an eye out, um, coming from you? Anything like that that you want to discuss? Yes, well, um, like, yeah, as I mentioned, so I feel like I have separate lives with arbitration <laughs> because, you know, I'm, I'm really busy also doing council work. So I'm working on a variety of um, commercial and investment matters. It's in a, an investment case that I've been busy on working and so it's going to the jurisdictional phase now. So I'm working on that, but I'm not going to give too much details about the cases I'm working on. Um, but on the side, yeah, the project that's been involved in, um, well, this in the CICA, like I mentioned, the editorial board, which is which is great, and I think people should definitely sign up for that. What else has been kept me uh, kept me busy? I joined also the uh, Paris, a very uh, sorry, the London, a very young arbitration uh, group. Well, you you got to get those right. Look, they're very they're very uh, specific. <laughs> very specific and they're very age specific as well so i'm not so they're very young uh anymore but i now get to step in as a mentor uh so i'm really looking forward to helping um my mentees and that group but that's uh that's something that that's uh kept me busy and also i encourage everyone to sign up uh for that group and based in london um although as we discussed all the frontiers have been kind of <laughs> you know uh moved around but they're still kind of you know, region-specific activities and groups um, that we've been working on. I'm also part of um, another association, uh, which is called um, the African Association for the Practice of Public International Law. So that's mm-hmm. the translation of the French. Uh, that's why I hesitated. Um, and it's an a- academic forum, but, you know, also for practitioners um, interested in international law in Africa. Most of the stuff that we've done has been it. Um, but we, we set up these annual days of um, international law for Africa, uh, and our first edition was last year, uh, and we discussed the Africanization of international law, 
and this year we did uh, we discussed the environmental uh, law concerns in Africa, uh, and obviously there was a, a specific panel on dispute resolution with you know the treaties being changed with respect to environmental obligations and what that means for investors, what that means for states. Um, and we had a bunch of really really interesting speakers speak at this conference. Uh, Macan uh, Magday was no. one. Uh, Professor Laurence Boisson-Chazoun was another one. We had people from the EC Energy Charter Treaty speak. Um, so if any of those, I, I like to just, you know, say that their conferences are not just in English. I think it's important. Uh, so this one was in French. So any French speaking person interested in that should have a look. We have a link to that conference online. So I'll send you the link as well, Chris, and uh, you can, it was recorded on YouTube so people can listen to that. Very cool. And thank you for pointing out that uh, they do have uh, events in English as well, because there are some of us that are uninitiated, don't necessarily speak French. <laughs> no, no. They... Yeah. Of course, of course. But it's, it's also good to see that the arbitration community is so diverse. I, I think it's also important to note that. And I've been really interested in, in speaking to people from different jurisdictions and different backgrounds. And um, I think it's a beautiful community. And then and it's it's very diverse in the in the sense you know with a capital D and we shouldn't just focus on you know coming from a certain sector a certain ethnicity or a certain you know I think gender I think it's much more than that and when you see a variety of conferences and languages spoken and topics involved you can really see that big D in diversity in arbitration so I'm trying to get involved in the ones that I love but it's it's sometimes it's <laughs> it's a lot it's a lot there's a lot out there yeah. Well, absolutely. And I think, um, again, on that last point that you just mentioned, um, when it comes to diversity, we've seen sort of these huge pushes. I mean, even in just since the last two years since you and I spoke, um, you know, not only just in a, in a gender context, but an ethnic and cultural context as well. Um, we saw a big push for that last summer, too. And it seems like that's sort of a, a, a prominent topic that will continue to sort of be at the forefront. So it's something that's uh, prescient and important. Very important, and I'm so happy um, that you know there's been so many different initiatives like Real. I think you're referring to Real, the uh, uh, Racial Equality Arbitration uh, Association, which you're part of as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. With uh, Reka, Kabir, Karina, the whole gang of. It's amazing. It's great, and shout out to all of you guys for doing that. It's really amazing. That's really good. Um, so I think it's a really fun time uh, to be a junior practitioner in arbitration. There's so much to chew upon for them. There's so much to be involved in different associations and everything. So um, I think it's a fun time. It's a fun time for arbitration. Well, yeah. And, and speaking of the time, you know, we one of the things that you mentioned um, just a little bit ago was that, you know, we have the ability to kind of interconnect in a way that we hadn't really before. And... And that creates this sort of unique opportunity to, to collaborate and to work together. I wonder, going forward, you know, as the world starts to slowly reopen, um, well, hold on, let me pause. You know, for right now, while we still are in the throes of, of, of going through this process a little bit, um, what are some tips or, or, you know, what has kind of been your perspective or experience in working from home or surviving and, you know, doing this sort of um, overnight change to having to be completely remote? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, I'm going to, before I answer, I'm just going to put a little bit of caveat of who I am. Also, I am also a mother of a five-year-old. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, with a husband who also works. 
with a husband who also works. So I think this equation kind of changes my answer. Sure. Both of us are working full time and we actually don't have any fam um, family support where we live. Uh, so obviously, um, you know, it's been a bit of a challenge, I think, um, like a, a lot of people. But, you know, it's, it's not, I think, exactly the same, uh, depending on your, on your family situation. Um, what have we learned? We've learned that we need to organize ourselves much <laughs> more than we ever did. Uh, so everything is a lot of logistics and uh, we just have to really, you know, have to have, you, you, you have to be very, very strict with your organization, I think, to have things happen. Um, the second thing that I realized is also, um, it, you need to have a break sometimes. I mean, we've been working from our houses in London in particular, we've been working um, from here for the last year, the whole year, Chris. I haven't stepped into the office, I think even maybe once or twice, but that's it. Mm. Um, so it's been really difficult, I think, to adjust to this new normal in the sense of you need to, to realize that you need a break sometimes from work. And since your connection to work is your phone or your laptop, which is already always there, it's really hard to disconnect. Um, so, you know, we're learning the hard way, but um, even in the firm, we've We've installed some, given the opportunity for people to get involved in something else that, than a legal activity. Because, of course, I'm here also, again, saying arbitration practitioners, in addition to your council work, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. And I'm also very involved in a lot of associations, but the truth is you need some time to do something else to make the core practice function <laughs> your life function um, so you know discovering that you need to set up some time for your sport activity for you know reading fiction non-arbitration related work you know is, is important and uh you know it sounds like basic stuff chris i know but i had to teach myself that um again yeah i think we all did uh, the challenge yeah, I think there was very much this temptation to kind of just you live at your office now and you wake up and your commute is a walk down the hallway and you're just always on, you know, you stay up, you get up too early and then you stay up too late. And that has a compounding effect, I think, if you're not careful. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the other thing is also, you know, as when we were speaking, I think in 2019, I was perhaps traveling a bit too much. Now <laughs> I realize um, uh, there's a lot of travel that could have been avoided um, in terms of conferences, for example. It's really fun. I always enjoy traveling uh, for you know number of obvious reasons and meeting people. And I'm a very social person. I love connecting with people. But the truth is, it's true that, that the cost of it is incredibly high. Um, and you know, not just the financial cost, but also you know we all get really tired by doing that. And uh, it's also, like I mentioned, not great for the environment. And and a lot of these you know, conferences can be done online and they're really great. So I think that's something I learned also. And, and you know, talking about the heart of our, of our work, um, you know, virtual hearings, you've done some, I'm sure. I've done a couple. They work really well. They work really well. So, you know, we should maybe think about that further down the line when we're allowed to meet again. We really need to have everything in person, you know. Uh, I think that's a questions yeah. Well, you know, the, talking about the efficacy of remote hearings, don't tell respondent from the Vismut problem that that works. <laughs> <laughs> no, joking, joking. There. There's a bunch of issues, of course, coming from that, but, you know, we can deal with that as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that it's it's going to be especially for for those of us that are in house or that work at companies um, to to go back and to say to our, our bosses or to the folks that make some of the financial decisions that hey, we absolutely need to travel, you know, this many times per year, or that this is you know to make the case for everything being in person. I think that that conversation is absolutely going to have to change, and it's probably true for counsel, um, external counsel as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, Sadia, so I understand that today, um, you know, I love catching up and chatting with you, but I understand you've got a, a couple of friends that have come along with you today. Is that right? Absolutely. My friends, my, uh, so we, we mentioned it a little bit at the earlier uh, this interview, but uh, my fantastic uh, co-hosts, uh, Joel Delkis and Brian Kodic, um were really great, uh, are, are joining us today. Oh, oh, snap. And so the way that we're going to do this for y'all listening at home is uh, Sadia is going to uh, hang out for a little bit in the background. Joel Joel is going to enter into the uh, digital studio next and then Brian. And then guess what? You hang on to the end and you get a conversation, a smorgasbord combination conversation with all three um, of us at the end. So, Sadia, thank you for stopping by and we'll see you in a little bit. Thank you for having me and see you later. Sure. So, uh, listeners, stay right there, and when you hear us again, you will be hearing from Mr. Joel Dahlquist. So, yeah, there was a blast from the past with Sadia. I mean, it was great to have her in the studio again. I was hoping the next time we chatted, it would be face-to-face and in person, but um, as we are, and we're still in the age of COVID, um, that cannot be. But I think we've got some good company and then the third part, the next part that's going to be joining us today is the one of the co-hosts of the Arbitration Station, Joel Dahlquist. Joel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. This is maybe my first time on the other side of things. I really look forward to not doing much and just being a lazy guest. <laughs> being a lazy guest. Well, that's fine. I think we can do some of that heavy lifting and hopefully uh, pull a great conversation and interview out of here. So... On that note, Joel, we'll start the conversation where we begin all of our conversations here on Tales of the Tribunal. Um, who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? So I am much like the word smorgasbord from Sweden. And that's not very rare in the world of international arbitration. There are Swedes here and there for various reasons, which we don't necessarily have to to go into. There's, there's some history of arbitration in Sweden, which is also how I sort of stumbled onto this field uh, to begin with. I now live in London and I spent the pandemic in London. My plan uh, as regular listeners of our podcast will know uh, was to, to move to New York uh, or at least to go back and forth a lot because my employer arbitration chambers was trying to open up a branch in New York. And then of course 2020 happened and plans got bundled up a little bit. So now I am uh, in London, and actually, you know, today is the first day post-lockdown in London, which I look forward to a lot. It's been a strange year sitting here. I'm going to run out to a bookstore and a pub after we finish probably today, because it's, it's been special uh, by the six months, as I say. Well, sure. No, I mean, that that's quite a bit. Um, so you were supposed to be opening a, a law firm office um, last year. That got a little bit pushed back. I mean, is, is the firm still going to be opening an office there? How? I mean, or did you still manage it? I mean, what happened there? 
I'm happy you asked that because that also gives me the opportunity to explain a little bit more about what, what Chambers is and, and how arbitration chambers work. It, it is essentially like a barrister's chamber in the United Kingdom where you have practitioners, typically in, in other contexts, they're barristers or they're legal counsel practitioners. In our case, they're arbitrators who are independent from each other, but sort of come together under one organizational roof for practice purposes, essentially. Uh, and uh, even though they work independently, they may share some resources. I am one of those resources. I'm an associate lawyer and I work as assistant and, and secretary, as essentially being an associate lawyer working for mostly for one of these arbitrators. And Arbitration Chambers has been in, in Hong Kong and London for a long time, but starting in 2020, the plan was to also open up in New York, which we did for a couple of months and then you know, everything happened. So um, the plan is still very much to be in New York. There are some arbitrator members in New York. I have a, a colleague and other uh, legal counsel in New York. Uh, I might go to New York. I don't really know what's going to happen, but we'll see. Very cool. Very cool. You know, we've kind of started midstream about talking about, you know, the things that you're doing in international uh, investment arbitration and um, and your, your current practice. What's the, the what's the origin story here? I mean, what why did you get interested in international arbitration or maybe even law more broadly? What's that story about? Um, how far back should we be? I, I'm um, more than anything, I wanted to be an academic. I think that's sort of the, the origin story. Further back than that, I, I grew up in sort of a, a family where education wasn't uh, necessarily the, the priority and if you had asked me when I was 16 I could probably have told you what a university was but I could not connect the dots that it was something that you know was on the books literally for for me when I did connect those dots and I realized you could go to university which also in Sweden where I'm happen to be from you get money from the government it's free it's even the case that you get funding from the state to go to universities. It wasn't that big of a step that it might have been uh, otherwise. I really enjoyed university and tried to figure out a way almost from day one to stay at a university for as long as I possibly could, which meant go to various programs, including law school, and then afterwards also starting a PhD program, which in Sweden, like many other places, is sort of a, a paid position. You're hired by way to get you in the academic pipeline and you have to do teaching and committee meetings and I, and I love that frankly and then that that it happened to be law and more specifically international arbitration law I think it's like many other things for most people when they try to look back at their career you know, it's, it's just happenstance and random things I knew I wanted to work with something that had something to do with international issues could have been anything happened to be arbitration because I read a book of young Paulson when I was interning for law firm one summer and investment arbitration sounded exciting and then one thing that's another sure no that, that that's really interesting so um if i'm hearing you right it sounds like your phd position your phd work at least from the beginning was sort of like a job like right out of college as opposed to you know starting to work and then saying ah i think i want to go be an academic now or something like that is that kind of on the mark or basically and also unfortunately i think uh, i would have been a better doctoral candidate and would have written a better doctoral dissertation if i had waited longer than i did i basically had i think a year after law school i clerked for a court uh, and that was the only thing i did before I, I got admitted into the phd program but it's 
kind of because because you get paid, it's it's kind of hard to get one of those positions. It's, it's attractive because it, it's unlike many other PhD programs, it is salaried. So it, when you do, you, you you drop what you're doing and you accept it. So that's I think it was 24 or 25. I, I sh ideally I should have been 30, but that's easy to say now, and and I, I would jump again if given the opportunity. Sure, and I guess then the, the follow-up question that comes to mind for me is what words would you have for someone that is maybe having that same sort of conversation that perhaps a younger Joel Dahlquist was having about maybe I should pursue a PhD or not? What, what, what words or thoughts would you give to that type of person? It, it depends a little bit, of course, on what you're doing but, and, and where you are in life and the funding and whatnot. And generally speaking, you know, education is the only thing they, they can take away from you. It's not, it's not gonna gonna hurt to be more educated if you can. And I also happen to think that universities, both on a personal level, it's the, it's the optimal employer for most people. You, you get to do, in the best of the world at least, whatever you want. It's an, uh, a tremendous amount of freedom. It's a very inspiring environment in terms of the people that are around you. And I think universities are also you know, important. It's, it's, a, it's an easy way to be a part of something bigger where you can get a platform to take part in, in bigger discussions than what maybe the average legal practitioner has access to. Well, sure. No, I, th I think that's great. Um, I will say for me, I don't see a PhD in my near future. Perhaps, uh, you know, I'm still too scarred from American law school to, <laughs> to want to jump back into that. Yeah, but that, that's really admirable and, and fantastic you were able to accomplish that. Um, shifting that. Shifting from there just a little bit, um, Joel, um, you and your cohorts um, at the podcast um, have been established in the ISDS field for, um, for some time now. Um, do you see any trends in ISDS, um, and I leave that intentionally as broad as any way you might want to take it, that you think might carry over to the commercial arbitration world? or And if it helps give a little bit more direction to that question, do you think that there's any concern or, or, or maybe fear or apprehension that those of us in the commercial arbitration world should have um, based on some of the criticism that ISDS has received? It's a million dollar question. <laughs> I think there's, you know, there's a cross fertilization and cross-pollinization between the two. Many people work in both. And I think if you were to ask the average practitioner in that position, he or she would probably say that the difference isn't that big. It's barely discernible. The substance may differ, but in terms of procedure, it's more or less the same. And in your day-to-day -day work, it, it doesn't really matter if the, the instrument of consent is a treaty or a contract. And if, the, if the, one of the parties happens to be a, a sovereign, that happens in, in contractual cases too. But on a more sort of macro level, of course, I think investor-state arbitration, for better or worse, has put arbitration on the map, including commercial arbitration. And there are more people interested in it now on a, on a global scale. And I think, you know, the, the cliche answer, which I also think happens to be a, the, the best one, is issues of transparency. It's really where we can see investor-state arbitration influence commercial arbitration. Every arbitral institution I was working with publishing awards, maybe even publishing the identities of arbitrators and counsel. And arbitrators who are writing commercial awards are aware now that there's a much bigger fit slash potential, depending on your perspective, that the award is going to be read by someone other than the parties, which 10, 15 years ago was not the case. I have a sense, um, I did some archival research for my dissertation at both the SCC and the ICC, and I worked at the SCC as well. The older commercial arbitration awards it's clear that they are, you know, they're solving a problem for the parties, which which is what the parties are asking for. 
but that gives you some leeway to be kind of short sometimes in the reasoning. Whereas now, especially in order international arbitrations, I think there's an expectation that there might be other people other than the parties reading the award and arbitrators are more careful. And I think that is something that comes from investor state arbitration where you obviously can assume that the award is going to be made publicly available. And when you've written a few of those, I, I'm sure that will also influence the way you approach the, the deliberation and the drafting process also in commercial arbitration. This is obviously, I think, a good thing. And I think most people would sign up to this as well, especially people who are critics of the system. More, more transparency is almost functionally you know, a, a good argument, something that, that is desirable. Then that might be drawbacks and... Uh, I think the institutions are doing a good job in, in keeping the, the pace of transparency reform uh, moderate enough to get everyone on board, if I put it diplomatically. Well, sure. And I guess, you know, I think that those, those points are well said. Um, I guess, the, again, the follow-up that I might have there would be, you know, if, if, arbit- if the current trends in arbitration, whether that be investor state or commercial arbitration run the risk of perhaps resembling too much uh, courtroom litigation. And if that runs the risk of turning off some users because it's just privatized court. Yeah, I mean, of course, that that's one of the, the best, I'm not going to say necessarily it's an argument against, but it's absolutely a perspective that makes things a bit more complicated. But if so, I think where commercial arbitration or, or dispute resolution in, in the commercial sphere more generally has an advantage over investor state arbitration, I think is the flexibility. For better or for worse, you're kind of locked in in many ways with investor state arbitration. Of course, if the parties agree, you can figure things out, but with treaties that you can change very easily or modify, and with the exit convention in particular, that, that you know, it's, the, it's like the US Constitution. It is what it is, and it's never going to change. You have a framework that is kind of that's not the case necessarily with purely commercial dispute resolution. Parties can tailor it, and there are simplified rules, there's emergency rules, there's mediation, there are other kinds of dispute resolution that isn't necessarily arbitration, and there's there's some leeway there to, to adapt and to tailor, but obviously that's something that is for the community of arbitration lawyers to figure out. That's not something you can expect uh, a one-time litigant to, to come up with in the individual case. Sure. No, I think that that's, um, again, fair enough. And, 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 and frankly, a deeper conversation, you know, is waxing perhaps too poetic <laughs> um, for, uh, for where we can probably have the time for today. Um, let's, let's step back from that a little bit and, and get to know um, maybe some things that are completely unrelated to the world of arbitration. Um, what are you reading right now? What's, on, what's in your bookshelf? Oh, finally. We can, we can talk. <laughs> I, I wasn't joking when I said I'm going to go out to a bookstore. That's what I've been missing the most during the pandemic. I've, I've, I've been reading more than, than ever uh, and, and ordering books online. And I've tried to not order through Amazon. I, I don't mean to bash Amazon any more than necessary. Study already thinks that I'm a Nordic socialist. <laughs> it's okay. They're not a sponsor. I'll be careful. I, I, I enjoy independent bookstores, and I, I, it's harder, obviously, to, to do that online, but I've been working hard now. I'm going to try to do it in person and go buy books. And I, I've read almost a novel a week, I think, since the, this whole uh, pandemic thing started. Currently, I'm reading Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel, which is one of the, big, the biggest sellers in contemporary UK literature that I 
hadn't managed to read before. It's very long and it's set in the 16th century, but sort of a political drama. And I think there might be more books than one I have, have yet to discover. I've also reread a bunch of classics and I've, I've tried to, basically my own, the only thing I spent money on in the last year with no travel, no restaurants, nothing fun going on, has been ordering books and it's getting kind of cramped in the bookshelf. So the answer is a lot, and you're putting us all to shame. I mean, a novel a week? I mean, come on, man. <laughs> I, I don't have a five-year-old. Uh, <laughs> I don't really have a lot of lot of other things going on in my life generally either. So what, I, what else am I going to do? And so, and so then what's the soundtrack to your reading time? What kind of music do you listen to? Do you kind of fill your free time with? Feel free to shoot me for this but uh, i i listen to all kinds of music i'm one of those who take pride in saying and i i genuinely mean that i am a big opera buff jazz is probably the thing i listen to when i get the spotify a yearly review is always the the jazz uh, giants that are the top five the top ten but i also I, I grew up in the 1990s with the indie music and the hardcore scene and the metal scene and now the the reading and the cooking music tends to be soft 1970s rock, yacht rock, the, the Steely Dan, Fleetwood Mac soundtrack of imagining having California in 1979. Yo, that's that's completely okay. No hate, no hate there. I I like a diverse palette. I think listening to a lot of different music expands the mind. No judgment here, Joel. No judgment. I mean, I can't speak for Saudi or Brian. They might judge you, but I'm not. Oh, they will. <laughs> Um, well, listen, and this is the last question we have uh, time for before we do our, our, our big sort of um, Avenger-style team-up. What are you doing to um, keep your sort of physical and mental health in balance during the age of COVID? I mean, you're mentioning lockdowns just ending. How are you sort of uh, keeping things in It's a great and very important question. It's something that I, I almost wish I, uh, I were teaching, which I used to do uh, during the PhD, because this is an important time to be communicating more junior people. I only have a few junior members working with chambers and compared to when I was teaching when I had a lot of students, I feel like this is a good time to be to be concerned with other people's well-being, including uh, as well as your own. Uh, I have generally the lifeline of a much older man, and that's also how I try to keep well. Long walks, slow, non-ambitious cooking projects while drinking wine, naps, reading, you know, all, all, basically whatever the, the doctor recommends for someone in their mid-70s. That's always worked out pretty well for me. But I recently started a, a, an app called Freeletics, which I normally would not promote, but, but it, you know, it's one of those workout without equipment things. And I had some friends, lawyer friends, actually, who, who shared it on Instagram. And at first I was annoyed because they, they kept updating me about their progress. And, everything was going and then I saw the benefit of it and now I started almost daily for, for a couple of months doing various workouts and I already feel I'm not at Brian's physical fitness level yet probably never will but I feel a bit a bit less like a man in his mid-70s if I put it that way a bit less like a man in his mid-70s if I put it that way no that's fair enough that's fair enough that's very cool um well Joel Thank you for your time, um, and we will see you in about uh, a few minutes when we connect with all of us together. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this, Chris. You are tr truly the, the best arbitration podcast. No, 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 no. You guys are keeping that hat um, squarely on your heads. 
Um, so we'll talk to you guys in just a moment. So uh, listeners, stay right there. And when you hear us again, you will be hearing from Mr. Joel Dahlquist. All right. Well, the carousel keeps turning right on along as we head to last, but certainly not least, the third member of this A-team that is the arbitration station, Brian Kotick. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Nice to see you and hear from you again. Yes, absolutely. And he says again, because in the off season, when uh, we were taking a, a nap in our podcasting hammock, Brian and I actually were on a panel, um, for, I think for the D.C., bar, maybe the, the DC Young Practitioners Group, um, talking about arbitration and podcasting. So um, that was a lot of fun. Um, so Brian, I'm going to ask you the question that I just got, uh, one question that I just got done asking uh, Joel. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? <laughs> How much time do we have? Um, I'm from Los Angeles originally, and I thought I have shaken off, but I Joel reminds me repetitively that uh, I actually am very Californian. Um, and I studied in D.C., actually, speaking of the D.C. bar, I studied at uh, American University um, and found my way through several moot court competitions over to Sweden. Um, and what do they need to know about me? Well, right now, the most exciting thing is that I've um, left big law and joined a boutique international firm called MB Kemp uh, LLP here in London. We have an office in Hong Kong as well. Um, it's basically a spin-off of some Stevenson Harwood partners and some partners from Winston and Strawn. So it's very exciting to be on my own and have this kind of entrepreneurial spirit that I felt like I did not have uh, being part of a big law firm. So that's what the people need to know right now. And how recent has that changed, Brian? I started in November, so mid-lockdown, which is an interesting uh, timeline. Um, and so, yeah, I've been there for about yeah, six months now, um, but it's, you know, aside from actually doing work, there's a lot of the admin side of starting your own law firm that I had no idea about getting authorized by the regulatory authority, getting an accountant, getting your manage document management set up and, uh, and the like. So it's, it's been a great opportunity, actually, to get to know the other side of actually running a business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's let's rewind there for just a second. So we got it. You're from L.A. You went to D.C., went to American. But um, what was that jump like? I mean, why did you go to law school in the first place? Because uh, I'm Jewish and <laughs> my mom told me I had no other choice. <laughs> um, I actually didn't even think about it. I kind of was at the end of I studied at University of Michigan. I did economics as my degree, economics and Spanish, actually. Um, and I had always wanted to go to my it had just been instilled in me and I thought, well, you know what, this is, you know, a logical next step for me. And um, I definitely wasn't going to become an economist. I have trouble with numbers, which is just like, <laughs> made me a perfect lawyer. <laughs> um, and and then I, I found American University because of not only its international reach, but also um, the diversity and that they had a lot of human rights and they had a lot of public international law courses. And so um, I found American University to be really interesting. It was great because, you know, I wrote my thesis in the Library of Congress. So um, it was a fantastic, a fantastic place to be. And that was when I was there was the first year that Horacio Guggenaon opened the International Arbitration uh, School. I forget what the name of it is that he's called it. But um, so that's that's how I got exposed to arbitration. I said, wait, is it public international law is a little too theoretical. I have my economics background. 
I was like, where does that meet in the middle? And and luckily, I was the investment arbitration mood at Frankfurt that really exposed me to the principles. Wow, no, that, that's really interesting because um, kind of one of the next questions I kind of had kind of queued up was that, um, as you might know, I mean, a lot of U.S. law schools don't really go very deep into the world of international arbitration, dispute resolution. I think we had maybe one course at it at, at, at South Carolina. Um, so then it was the moot, it sounds like, that was kind of your, your gateway into international arbitration more broadly, and in particular, international investment arbitration. Is that right? Exactly. So the, I took a small little seminar with Horacio and got into commercial arbitration because he was still at the ICC at the time. Um, and then I... They, they had always been doing the this moot as part of the moot court team, but I wasn't part of the team. So I joined together with some of the participants of the moot court team too. Uh, they found the investment moot in Frankfurt and we knew absolutely nothing about it. And we didn't really have anyone to help us. Um, there were not very many professors that were full time to kind of to help us understand what investment arbitration actually was, which you can imagine as, and you're right. I mean, there, there are not a lot of resources for, um, American law students that want to practice international law. I think you, everyone thinks they're just going to join some securities outfit and to join some securities litigation for 10 years on the same case. So I found this and I was like, okay, this is really great. And we really, we were a renegade team. We had no coach except for helping us with the moot court kind of procedure, but the actual substantive law, we were really knocking our heads against the wall for, for several months, trying to understand it and how it worked. And then when we got there, that was when we really opened our eyes, um, listening to the other teams, meeting the, the arbitrators and the other coaches and and realizing really, you know, how exciting this this field was. OK, so I think we've heard where you currently are, what you've been doing the last, you know, six months to, you know, some change. We've heard the beginning, you know, kind of what sparked the interest. Yeah. Can you fill in the middle for a little bit? Um, you know, what took you from A to B to C from um in between yeah absolutely so at that frankfurt moot um we did quite well and one of the judges of our final rounds was murray ostrom who was a partner at setterballs which is a swedish law firm and we got to talking after the moot and she asked if anyone in our team was lined up with a job afterwards or had any future in or wanted a future in international arbitration and you know we got to talking and she said there's a master's program at Stockholm University and um, would I be interested in applying and the professor there Patricia Shaughnessy she's actually American she's Hawaii born actually yeah. um, and moved to Sweden uh, 30 years ago and um, so I put in an application and was accepted and Basically, I mean, it was like a three-month turnaround after the move to getting accepted to the program. And I put my New York plans on hold. I took the bar exam just, you know, as a backup. And then I went to Stockholm. And I did the, the and commercial, it's a commercial arbitration program. It's one-year program. And she has about 20 to 30 students. Right now, it's run by Karina Baltok, which is, you know, an amazing successor of the program. And... Um, 20 to 30 students from one person from a different jurisdiction. There was no two alike, uh, which was a great comparative law experience. And then after that, I, you know, they told us in the program, it's really difficult to get jobs in Sweden. Um, you need to speak Swedish and, uh, and the arbitration community in Sweden is so strong that, um, you know, they have, they, they take courses in that, but everyone 
has a foot in arbitration if you're working in disputes in Stockholm. Um, so they said, you know what, the competition's tough, and if you don't speak Swedish, it's going to be difficult. I put in an application at Mannheimer Sparkling just, you know, right before I flew out to go back to L.A., and uh, I got the job. So, and I joined basically working with Kai uh, Hobert and Christopher Love um, in the Stockholm office, and and then the first document across my desk was the draft statement of claim for uh, the Bothenfall arbitration. So, um, got thrown right into the mix <laughs> at an early stage. So, so yeah, I mean, so your story is more or less the quintessential reason why, A, you should absolutely get involved in a moot court program. B, you should apply to opportunities even if you think you don't necessarily meet every single box. And C, just be open to new experiences. I mean, what? <laughs> I mean, it sounds like that's exactly it. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think if we, you know, especially as an American law student, focus on what we were taught and what we're exposed to and just sit in your comfort zone, I would have been in a job that didn't really make me fully fulfilled in my interests. And I would have been, you know, working in, a, in probably a sector I wasn't really that passionate about. Um, I had I did a summer associate position in an, in an IP department. And thinking that, you know, coming from L.A., I was it was media law. It was, you know, anything related to the to the production companies in L.A. And I was like, you know, this is interesting to me. It's what I know. And then after working for, for a couple of months as a summer associate, I said, this is not what I want to be doing. It, it seemed really repetitive to me. Um, and so I thought, you know, international arbitration, well, you have different clients from different countries uh, speaking different languages and each case is a different subject matter. So um, when I started realizing that was the potential, if I joined that field, then then it kind of positioned me in a new direction. And you're right. I, I If I was not open, I definitely would have done this. I definitely wouldn't have taken a chance. People looked at me when I graduated saying, Stockholm, <laughs> where is that? And why are you going there? Um, but just to remind you, I graduated at what they called what did they call it? The dark year of graduating? I, I'm sure it's the same as this year, actually. Mm. It was during the crisis. So it was it was right after the crisis. And jobs at big firms were not being doled out um, as quickly as they were before. And the, the salaries weren't as high as before. So we had to get creative. And we had to get, um, you know, taking on some more alternative ideas to what success could be. Well, no, I mean, especially that last bit of the story that you just sort of... Um reiterated really resonates because, um, you know, when you say, oh, um, you're studying law in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Oh, but you're going to do your last year abroad in Beijing. Like, wait, hold on. <laughs> Time out. That, 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 those numbers. Wait, why? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, definitely. And look, now we're on the crest of something that, you know, is really exciting. And I think a lot of people are trying to break into. So, well, right. But the commonality really is, Brian, I mean, you know, that it's not so much international arbitration. This is just how you become a podcaster, really. I mean, if you want to look at <laughs> Uh, the the stream there. Um, okay, very cool. Um, so now we know your background. We know kind of where you're at. Um, I do want to take a look back at something that you did probably several years ago, um, or it was about several years ago, um, for the Kluwer Arbitration Blog. You wrote this piece that was titled Modernizing the Arbitration Act and talking about specifically um, the Swedish Arbitration Act. Now, I guess one of the questions that comes up, a couple of questions come to mind, but the first one, I guess, maybe in a pragmatic sense, I mean, what, what has happened since the time you wrote it? I mean, did the, did the powers that be listen? Did the, the Swedish arbitration law evolve in the way that you recommended, or um, is it still leaving some things to be uh, amended? 
It definitely wasn't my own recommendation. They actually um, published a report on kind of, it was based, you know, kind of um, instructions on, on what they intended to pass. And they actually ended up passing very, very closely to what they had suggested. So it was a year after I wrote that article on Hoover that they, that they actually passed the new revised changes to the Swedish Arbitration Act. It was in March 2019, I believe. And they did a lot of the the main points I hit in my in my article. Um, they were passed and and put into the new act, like um, the arbitrator's ability to decide on the substantive law if not ag agreed to by the parties, um, where where you can appeal um, decisions on jurisdiction. Um, they had you know what the Supreme Court would be able to grant leave for if, if you wanted to appeal a, a court of appeal decision to the Supreme Court in Stock in Sweden. Um, kind of what the grounds would be for that. And so Sweden, and so the, the act did exactly what they had intended the, the year prior. And Sweden always really is at the forefront of modernizing their, their laws and, and also the rules. Um, I know that the SEC does a great job of, of keeping those up to date, but they, you know, arbitration, the arbitration culture in Sweden is minimalist, like it's furniture. Um, <laughs> it's very much about party autonomy. And, and the point of that is that they don't want to encumber the parties um, with a very heavy procedure if the parties can agree to it themselves. And I think they've been quite successful in that. And that's why you see, you know, a lot of cases going to arbitration, especially their expedited rules, um, a smaller cases going to arbitration. And we saw that at Anheimer as well. You just get um, a lot more, but they do need to modernize it, and they and they have they have you know provisions on consolidation that they try to get in um, to to really kind of embrace the um, commercial realities of what's happening in contracts. No, sure. I mean, and it's good to, uh, or not necessarily just good, but it's um, pragmatic to kind of keep these things in mind and to try and you know adjust before it becomes you know becomes disjointed or outdated. I mean, that's kind of a, a good thought process to have. Yes, absolutely. So along those same lines, and I and appreciating that, you know, perhaps, you know, again, how much time do we have? Um, this is a broad question. Um, I wonder if there is anything as an American practitioner that you think our arbitration laws, our arbitration practice could do in order to modernize or to keep in step with best practices. Is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, actually, and I don't think you even knew this when you were preparing, but I wrote my thesis at um, Stockholm University on the... Um, Hey, oh God, I missed my thesis. <laughs> no, no, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna edit this part. Don't worry. I've linked on the title of the document the Restatement of International Arbitration in the United States. The U.S., which I think is is really interesting, yeah. uh, puts out the Restatement on International Arbitration, but it's from the U.S. law perspective, which you would seem to be a bit contradictory on its premise, which is that the U.S. is giving a restatement of the laws on international arbitration, but only in the perspective of the US, which doesn't make it international at all. Um, and so you have as a arbitration practitioner in the United States, you would look to the restatement and even potentially cite the restatement on certain substantive issues in international arbitration that are not in line with what the best practices in the international community. So I just picked up a few things uh, and some of them are you know, procedural elements like estoppel um, or res judicata and the scope of that. And so the restatement in the U.S. talks about how res judicata and estoppel are analyzed under U.S. law principles or common law principles to make it broader. 
Um, and those, if you were to follow that as a U.S. practitioner in international arbitration, I think you would be missing the point or not really developing the point in a way that you could effectively advocate for your client. Um, so I think as a U.S. law practitioner in arbitration, substantively, I think people need to really divorce themselves from what the U.S. Arbitration Act says as compared to what is best practice in, in international arbitration. Style-wise, I've changed completely in my advocacy, writing, written, and oral advocacy um, when I went to start, just when I was in my master's program, I, I was hit with the very brutal reality that, you know, saying an objection in an oral proceeding is not, is not allowed in international arbitration. <laughs> and, you know, certain things like that. And just, you know, embellishment in your language, um, verbose, written text, you know, all of this stuff is, is very much cliche for an American advocate. And it's, not frowned upon, but just not, it doesn't really have as much weight or a place in international. Okay. Well, no, it's, it's fascinating. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and I've seen that um, pretty large extent um, from, you know, working in China and then back to the U.S. and then getting the whiplash effect of starting to practice in, in Europe. So I hear exactly what you're saying on that yes. point. <laughs> you know more than, more than anyone. Um, okay. Well, let's, let's, let's shift gears yet again. Um, Similar to how we sort of wrapped up with Joel, uh, what's on your bookshelf right now? What are you reading? Oh, let's see. Um, Joel actually recommended a book to me that I'm rereading, and it's called The Little Life. It's, I, I think it's still his favorite book. I'm not sure. We'll have to confirm when he's back on. But um, it's a large, like contrary to the title, a very long book. And I, re I read it in pieces on vacation, and now I'm trying to read it you know, continuously. Um, but I'm actually, what is on my bookshelf is um, the English laws because I'm studying to qualify as a solicitor in the UK and that's monopolizing any free time that I have. No, that's, that's fair enough. And I, and I imagine that makes a lot of uh, sense. Um, and so to, to be a solicitor, so that's what you'll be taking up a lot of your time with. Um, again, what's the soundtrack to that? What's, what's the music that's filling your ears while you're uh, reading and or studying? Oh, what music am I listening to now? Um, gosh, I, I, are you asking what music do I like to listen to or what do I listen to? Well, Both. I mean, what are you listening to now? What do you like to listen to? What's your, what are some of your jams? Yeah. So I'm from LA and my brother introduced me for the first like album I've ever bought was uh, Snoop Dogg. So <laughs> I, I do like rap and R&B and I do like anything from before the 2000s. Um, what I write to is something a bit more uh, lyrical, so maybe like Blood Orange or something a bit, something that has a bit more of a rhythm to it, just so that it keeps me going on my drafting track. Um, and maybe I'll dip into a classical. I'm feeling a bit heady, but <laughs> uh, I, and then you know I'm always a fan of um, pop as well. So I I listened to Destiny's Child before Beyonce left. So that's, <laughs> that's what I that's what I like to listen to. There's nothing uh, new that. Like no new music I've listened to that I can think of. I, I stick to the old stuff. No, I mean that that that's really cool. Now you said um, you listened to pre uh, or Destiny Child with Beyonce. Are you still down with current Beyonce or no? No. Oh. Commercial. No. Oh man. Oh, see, I, look, we can edit this out later. I don't know if you the Bayhive. Don't come for me. I didn't say it. No. This, I know. I'm gonna get hate mail now. Uh, people, they're like, Queen Bee, Queen Bee. I, you know, I think 
she was a different woman when she was with Destiny's Child. And now, I, listen, I, I appreciate the trajectory she's on, but she is too famous and too rich to care about what's coming out of her mouth, I think. Um, some of her, I saw her uh, live and um, it was just the most, I was, I was watching a two-hour commercial, that's what I thought. <laughs> it's lost, it's like grit. The grit of Dustin's Shout. <laughs> the grit of Dustin's Shout, right. No, no, well, look, Beyonce, if you're listening, we will absolutely welcome you as a sponsor to the show if you want to do that at some point. You are hove. Um, <laughs> um, well, Brian, uh, Brian, one more question before we uh, before we bring it back, uh, your compatriots. Um, you know, working from home can take quite a mental toll on folks, um, both in a physical and mental context. How do you balance your own mental and physical health during these times? I, to be completely honest with you, it's been, it has been difficult, not only starting a new firm and not having colleagues to kind of bounce off of, but I'm also like an, an introverted extrovert. I really feed off other people's energy and that's been really difficult when it's been prohibited by law. So um, I think for my, you know, mental health, actually, even though it's connected to my physical health, I have to do something active and it's not just a walk. It has to be something where I'm like, you know, my heart is racing and, I, and I'm and i actually um, getting it, you know, actually doing a, a proper workout. So we bought a full like home gym equipment and now I'm luckily enough in my new place to have a back garden. So I'm out there like jumping up and down <laughs> and I bought two cats, which has given, I never owned an animal and didn't understand uh, the love for animals. And I found people who love their animals a bit weird. And now I'm one of those weirdos and they're therapy animals <laughs> and definitely when I'm stressed or I'm at a roadblock in what I'm working on and I, I turn around and they couldn't care less except if I feed them. That's just <laughs> really puts life in perspective sometimes. Um, and then other than that, it's just really connecting with family. Um, I haven't seen my family in person for over a year. That's been really, really tough. Um, so I've just been trying to kind of keep up with them, call them video, FaceTime, anything to do with with that, but um, it, it's been tough. And I know some people who've really been struggling with it and, and I'm definitely in that category. So I'm really happy that London is finding its way out of lockdown at the moment. Yeah, um, especially on that last bit. Uh, last time I was um, back in the States and, and saw my, pers- my my parents and friends and family face-to-face was Thanksgiving 2019. Um, and here we are in mi- almost middle 2021. So It's terrible. It's really terrible. I have a lot of friends that have moved back, actually. Some Australian friends and American friends that just decided to move back. And I always say, don't make any binding decisions in a pandemic, even though I got married in a pandemic. But don't make any binding decisions in a pandemic because your your brain is not exactly where, where, uh, where it should be. So I'm I'm definitely going to stand on it, but I, I, I hear that point. Um, it's difficult. Well, on, on cheerier notes, um, if you're going to hang around for a little bit, Brian, we're going to bring back uh, back your homies from the arbitration station, and we're going to have uh, chop it up for one last segment to, to close out today's show. Can you hang out? Yes. Come on, homies. <laughs> All right. And we'll be right back. This- All right. Now, finally, we've had all three of them on the show at one moment or another. Now they are all together, very Avengers or DC style, you know, Justice League, whatever your preference might be. Um, we have the arbitration station in the house. Sadia, Joel, Brian, welcome to the show collectively. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> so 
Thank y'all for being here. And before we get into the questions, you know, I want the listeners to travel back in time with me for just a moment to the year of 2017. You know, the, a balder, still bald, a young Chris Campbell is listening to podcast. And there comes a show called The Arbitration Station. And Eureka, I say, wow, these these happening guys, Brian and Joel, I mean, they've got a whole show about arbitration and it turns out to be part of the inspiration for this show. So I want to turn to Brian and Joel and say, the arbitration station, what we know it's a podcast, but what exactly is it? What is your what is the origin story for the show? I, I we really have since we started said the same thing consistently, which is that we wanted to emulate an arbitration conference. But after the conference ends, when you're drinking wine with a bunch of people that you're sort of in the the gray stone between personal and professional and between substantive and just gossiping. I, I think that still holds true. But I heard on um, a New York Times podcast called um, uh, Still Processing. I don't know if you've heard this. They do promos on the daily as well. They say that their ambition is to be the kitchen at a good house party. That's where the good conversation is at any house party. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> what we said initially that we want to be the the kitchen where people are standing and just drinking whatever you can find and let the good conversation is happen. But in an arbitration context, I think that was the idea, and it took a while until we found that because initially uh, we can say now it was just the two of us, Brian and I, and that was a bit. Uh, it worked. I guess, but I think we both felt we, we lacked a certain something and a chemistry and it could be a, I don't know, a third voice and someone to, to, to change our perspective a little bit. So it took a while for us to realize that and then it took a while longer until we brought Sadia in as well. And I think now we've sort of managed to, to make the idea come true finally. Now on that point right there, Joel. Um, what was that? Who mentioned it first? Said, hey, we need to get a third person. And what? Hey, you, you know, Sadia, Sadia body. Hey, yeah, you get her and put her on the show. How did that conversation happen? <laughs> don't, don't get that. <laughs> I, I started to feel a bit bad. I mean, we were making jokes self-consciously, obviously, about being two white dudes just guessing and mansplaining on air, which was not tenable when we started in 2017, and it became increasingly not tenable to be just. You know, two mediocre men guessing their way through. Uh, the Me Too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We did a lot of things. We were talking about diversity. We were talking about Me Too. We were, we were just claiming space that we didn't really feel we were entitled to. And and I I genuinely felt that we needed someone also who could, you know, uh, push us a little bit and, and, and be, be mean and funny while being smarter than us, both of us. Uh, that's also why it's, I think there was a lapse, a lapse between realizing that we need someone else until we actually uh, asked Sadia to join us because it, it wasn't easy finding that person. But they met on a train, didn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a train to Cambridge, they met. And then Joel, text, Joel messaged me after, I forget what the season, I guess it was after the, before this last season, and it was uh, meet up with Sadia. Talk to her, see if she's a fit. Um, and we were we're very prote we're very protective, not very much over the podcast, but mostly over the tone. We wanted we don't want it to become 
too, you know, didactic. We don't want it to become a lecture. We don't want it to become, you know, very overly prepared conference, but we still want it to have substance. So we're very, very particular on that. And uh, we, you know, we found a couple people along our path that could fit in. So Joel was like, meet up with Sadia. So I messaged her in a very creepy way and was and told her to meet me at a cafe <laughs> on London Mall. And then she walked in and then it was like, it was like dating. I was, I was like, you know, not telling her why we were meeting, getting to know her, feeling it out, but still having a conversation. And at the end, I asked her to be our girlfriend. <laughs> I love the way you tell the story. That's so funny. I didn't know this. You didn't tell her you were talking about the podcast. You just reached out like, hey, I am also a lawyer. You want to grab a coffee? No, no, you didn't tell me. You, yeah, I actually was in touch regarding the podcast. I think I, I you know, just, just go back. I was in love with these guys. I have to say that. Um, again, I, I moved to Cambridge in 2017. 2016, end of 2016, and I was starting to do the commute again to London every single day, starting from that date. Um, and I was spending so much time at the train and doing work, and I was like, I need to find something else. Like, so I was looking at podcasts, and I typed, of course, instead of listening to other podcasts, I was like, oh, it must be an arbitration one. So I put arbitration in. Honestly, that's how it happened. And this thing came, arbitration station came out, and I was like, oh, that's great. And the first second I listened to it, I was hooked because of the music and the tone. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I started listening to it like religiously. And then the story about the train ride is that I went to a conference in Cambridge. Oh, no, sorry, in London, in arbitration. And I was like, I'm sorry, I have to go now at the end of the dinner. I live in Cambridge, so I have to take my train. And, and Joe's like, I'm taking that train too. I'm also in Cambridge. And I was like, okay, great. Um, all right, let's take the train together. And it took us a full like hour, I think. Uh, and he was speaking and I was like, you know, like the voice, it just sounds so familiar. <laughs> so I love these guys, but I didn't even do my research. I didn't even know who they were. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is Joel and Brian. I, I never looked them up. So I wouldn't know who he was. And then he confessed, he's like, oh, maybe you know me from the podcast. to be on the podcast and so I sent a message to Joel and Brian be like please have me on on any any topic that you want and I thought Brian was contacting me just to be on the podcast just for some topic that was the thing and so I was totally surprised when he said just post for that I was like what this is like wow <laughs> yeah I wasn't expecting that I mean well you are on the show I mean you know I mean you were he did ask you to be on it <laughs> Um, and pulling on that thread a little bit further, Sadia. So, I mean, what was the transition like going from being listener to host? Um, yeah, it was very, uh, very daunting. I was super, super stressed. I think I, I never told these guys that I, um, because they were so relaxed about it and so informed, and it, it, it's natural for them to to host the show. I, I thought it was, I think it's the same for you, Chris, as well, and. You, you have to do it a couple of times to feel comfortable, right? So I wasn't 
I I never did it before. The only time I had appeared on podcast was with you, Chris, actually. Um, so I was I was a bit nervous about the whole thing. Um, uh, and and I had also never listened to my own voice before. You know, it wasn't like the conferences were being recorded at the time, right? It was everything was live. Um, and so when I did the first session with them and they sent me the recording, I was mortified. <laughs> horrible, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so they told me that you can't listen to yourself, otherwise you're never gonna want to post it. It you, you, you just have to go for it. Um, so yeah, I was I was also very worried to disrupt the synergy between these two because I think they're they're great. They're uh, they're like Tom and Jerry. <laughs> like Tom and Jerry. Listen, listen. I will tell you, and I'm not gonna put this person on blast. Um, there was a guest, someone that we have interviewed in the past that listened to an episode or to the the, the first cut, and they said, "Hey, um, you know, I, my voice is too high." I don't like that my voice sounds so high. Can you deepen my voice for the, the actual published episode? <laughs> Which, for the record, we did do a little bit. Again, I won't say who it was or even what season because I don't want this person to be like they're on blast, but yeah. <laughs> Wait, you can do that? Why, why don't we do that? You, you actually you can, you can modify the voice? Why, why don't we do that, Brian? <laughs> because we don't know how to do it. <laughs> And, and I don't either. My sa- I got um um what my brothers and my dad all happen to have audio skills, and so they were able to figure that out. And so this person got a deeper voice. And so I say we can make you sound like James Earl Jones if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, my name is Brian Kodak. <laughs> um, okay. Well, um, what I would say next too, you know, speaking of the arbitration station, um. You guys in the middle of a great season um, and fascinating episodes. I, I really, for example, I mentioned when we we're setting this one up, I really loved the one on space because that's been a, a, a really big interest of mine recently. But what's going on with the show uh, now, I guess? You know, what's um, what's going on now and I guess what's coming? Well, we've, you know, something we've also talked about a lot was getting non-users of arbitration or kind of periphery users of arbitration onto the podcast and kind of giving a bit more insight into for us practitioners, kind of what else is happening in the market and not just you know law firm to law firm speaking. And I think we've done a really good job with that this season. After promising it several seasons in a row, I think this season we've actually done it with um, interviewing damages experts, interviewing in the next episode um, a kind of an AI company who works with uh, choosing arbitrators. Um, and we've definitely like fulfilled that promise. I think now in this in this season. And I think for next season, it really, it we we really go with the with the tide. I think that last, I think it was our second season, we did a whole series on seat of arbitration, and I don't think we have such a concerted effort moving forward because it is really difficult to kind of lock yourself into into a you know a trajectory and scrambling to find people who fit into that. And instead, we kind of have really embraced the fact that everyone in our field is working on something on the side. And everyone has a passion and every and it's all different. And it's quite exciting to kind of explore that and to contact the people. And that's what's so great about your podcast is it's really focused on the person. And I think when you kind of have that perspective, you really see what the passion is and get getting people on that speak about that. You know, when Rachel was talking about space law, you know, that was great. And I think if we hadn't been open and flexible to kind of do that, I, we wouldn't get that that segment on. 
Um, so I think that is something that we we try and do is just and if, if people think it's really hard to, to be on the podcast or that it's kind of this like locked vault, but we're really open to hearing from people and if pitching ideas and and you know we will put it together and, and what we see fit. But I, I think you know we, we really invite people to come and contact us and reach out because there's we don't know you know we are only limited by our own capacities and exposure. So we're very much welcoming people to come and contact us and email us and and pitch stuff. Well, sure. And, um, and I guess, you know, while following up directly on that point, how do people engage or how they get connect? How do they get connected to y'all um, on the show? If they want to pitch an episode or if they follow you somewhere, uh, where should they go? Google us and it'll <laughs> show up. I think we're on Twitter. We have a, a Gmail. I think uh, Twitter is the easiest way because we are still very bad at responding to emails. That's a constant. So we're spending slightly. We used to be better, but that's increasingly becoming an issue. No, I mean, I... Yeah, Joel is our Twitter, so we rely on him for that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Joel, if you're the Twitter persona, I mean, what is uh, what's your game? I mean, you out here roasting arbitral institutions, you providing news. I mean, what what kind of things are you posting? Uh, I, I used to be almost like that. I think you're joking, but but a few years back, that was basically it. Like, there's a lot of a lot of that in the older feed. Now it's mostly retweets and promos because I'm getting lazy. <laughs> Social media for basically. It, it was one of those things that midway through season two, someone had gotten my ear and said that, hey, you guys should have an Instagram, except it's in the middle of a pandemic. And like, <laughs> it's just like taking pictures of like, oh, still in the house. <laughs> oh. Um, no, that, that's really great. Um, you know, again, speaking, staying right on topic with the show, um, what are some of your favorite guests or moments? And I'd be curious to hear from each of you, um, on that, just favorite guests or moments from your time, uh, hosting or having the show. I know what Sadia is about to answer. I know what Joe's going to answer. <laughs> Sadia, do you know what Brian's going to answer? <laughs> mine, uh, well, you know who's mine, of course. Uh, mine is um, Toby Lando. I absolutely think he is fantastic. Um, even before we had him, we had him on, but when we had him on, a whole different league of likeness now for the person. <laughs> but I think he was really interesting. He spoke about uh, accuracy of fact witnesses in arbitration, um, and it was really fascinating. And his um, uh, um, it was based on a lecture that he gave uh, a while ago, actually, a couple of years ago. And, um, and, and since then, there's been a report published by the ICC um, on this very topic, just recently. So something that we learned a lot. So that was uh, one of the highlights, I think. Well, there were multiple ones, but there was this, this was a highlight for, sure for me. Very cool. Toby Landau. And OK, who's next? What's mine, Brian? If you if you claim to know, no, I'm going to the say his, that it's not the history of of course. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I, I really did enjoy that that interview, uh, which was a long time ago. But I will say, and this is this is being nice to you, Brian. Uh, another favorite part was we did a very long segment, and with apologies to Sadia, this was before you joined on LGBTQ issues and arbitration, which was almost an hour and a half with you and, and Michael Carley, our quantum boy, who is still the only repeat guest, I think, the only person to come on twice. That was really, really good. And 
uh, I didn't really configure it. I was just listening, and we got so much feedback both before and afterwards. I think it was the most like reader input. We had a lot of people emailing their own experiences and sharing things that weren't really related to work, but much more personal. And it sort of struck a note that I think is hard to strike when you're doing something like an arbitration podcast. So that, that was a really good segment that I'm kind of proud of. I'm, um, I, I think of the series that I'm proud of the most is, is our ECA series, and that was just a really big undertaking for Joel and I, which is to travel down to Australia and interview 13 people in three days, uh, which you know, Chris, is, is really difficult <laughs> and challenging, especially when you're jet lag. Um, but we had a really nice interview with, I mean, we had so many great interviews, but um, Mark Cantor gave a really um, fun interview, and I just find him captivating if he's reciting the phone book. So yeah, um, that, I think... It was, he was, uh, he talked about um, arbitration clauses in employment agreements, especially dealing with the Me Too movement slash um, summer associates. And um, so I, I really encourage people to go back and listen to that series, but um, also um, with Mark Cantor, I, I found it fascinating. Yeah, and I'll tell you, um, one of my favorite parts of the show is... Just in general, I think Sadia kind of talked about it a little bit. I think it's really the genuine chemistry that the three of you have and you've kind of cultivated here since uh, since she's joined and even before that. Um, in the way that in getting into the the sort of substance about the various topics, and I've never felt at any point that it was a lecture. And I think that that's all. <laughs> it sounds like what, that's what y'all are trying to avoid, the, this sort of, um, you know, we, especially now in 2020, the the zoom fatigue where it's just like look we cannot <laughs> do any more um sort of just these talking head segments so that's you guys have done a really good job with that and you're super happy fun time i always look forward to uh what those tidbits are going to be that's always great <laughs> we should keep that in mind too like i have two good notes for listeners of both our podcasts one is that i am amazed by the professionalism with which you are running this show it's really nice to be on this side and see the, the amount of preparation and listeners don't see this but i think people who have been guests on both of our podcasts probably walk away with different experiences uh, the arbitration station being three people who you would expect who can prepare a bit more than one person but uh you have thought through your interviews and you can tell listening to it. It's, it's amazing. And I'm a little bit ashamed, but I'm also inspired. Second note to listeners is also that we're doing this over Zoom, which is much harder than doing it in person for, for all of us. It, I think it's easy to, to forget about that. Brian, Sadi and I have been in the same room like once in the last year or so. And to, to keep up that the chemistry that we want and having as much fun as we want, it's really, really hard. Even during this interview, you know, we're, not, we're not even sure exactly how the, if the Wi-Fi is working, can, can they hear me? Do they know what's going on? <laughs> yeah, that's very different from sitting in the same room with a glass of wine and talking, which is, you know, that's what you want when you're recording a podcast. It has become the new normal, and uh, I hope it's it's not going to stay that way for very long. No, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, I'll speak for me personally. I was uh, terrified, I was petrified even that, you know, um, before pandemic had happened, I had a whole list of guests that I wanted to talk to and events I was going to go to and, and a whole plan. And then it's like, nope, just tear that all up and, you know, go back to the drawing board. And you really wonder is the, the, the what people apparently enjoy about your show, is that going to still come across um, well when the interviews are done via Zoom? So hats off to y'all for um, being able to sustain that and continue it forward. You know, we're... One time, 
Mm. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say the one time we, during the pandemic, where London was kind of open and not really closed, we, we met up physically to record and the audio was terrible that only time. <laughs> <laughs> it was just because we didn't, I don't know what happened and it was just one mic, um, but that was funny. To the final couple of questions that we've got today, unfortunately, the end of our, towards the end of our time together, um, what advice um, do you have for maybe those that are listening to this and thinking, maybe I want to start my own web series related to arbitration or dispute resolution? Um, how, you know, what are some of the things that I should keep in mind? And uh, anyone that wants to take that can take us away. Um, I will say that, um, you know, before Joel and I started, I met up with a few people who had podcasts not related to the legal profession at all. And I asked them kind of how they were handling it. And they really said you that like, like any series, you have to deliver on your promise. And that's just not only in content and style, but also in the amount of episodes you're going to release and consistency. Um, I think a lot of people think it's a great idea. And I think a lot of people, especially us overachievers, uh, take on a lot of projects and don't necessarily finish them because they were passion projects and then we're too busy and then we kind of back off. And I think the key to starting a web series and the key to starting a podcast, even if you're very passionate about it, is being very honest with yourself on whether you can fulfill the promise of releasing an episode every week, two weeks, whatever it may be. And, and that's why we've, you know, made it all into seasons and also that's why we have you know we've dedicated and and kept our promise and then when we changed our promise that we would go from weekly to bi-weekly that we made it very clear to the listeners and just to keep up with those expectations because you're selling a product and it needs to be reliable um, otherwise people will forget that you are there and they won't look for your podcast and they won't say you know like my favorite podcast it's like thursday oh i can't wait for this podcast to come out on thursday and if it's not there then you think there's something wrong and then you don't listen anymore no, that's absolutely right. Yeah. That's what I would say. Didn't we just take a, a break in publishing because it was your birthday, Mike? Yes, I didn't fulfill that promise to that. <laughs> he has risen. Oh my gosh, I have to say Brian on that one. It's not exactly because of his birthday. It's also because we were a bit overwhelmed. We were like, oh, no, it was Easter. It's like, that's why. It's killing the break. It's Easter. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, it's, it's a, an atheist, a Muslim, and a Jew. We don't celebrate Easter either of us. Oh, my God. Here we go again. <laughs> we take the best out of everything. We're inclusive. That's it. Inclusive. That's, that's diversity today, Joe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, how about, um, in general, I guess, maybe going in this, along those same lines, any thoughts for folks that are thinking of trying to break into international arbitration, whether that be ISDS or in the commercial side, any tips or things that you would advise that they could be doing right now while the world is still locked down or just in general? I always say one of the same thing, and that is to emphasize how much of a people business arbitration is. And that is increasingly important when we're all locked down and trying to do this remotely to remember that that is on the same notice as what Brian said about your show, Chris, and how nice it is to hear the, the, the people, the person behind something talk to people be nice to people and be aware that much of your success is going to be dependent on what other people genuinely think of you as a person as much as your sort of professional activities and, and work that's i think hasn't in my experience is very useful just be be nice well and then um i guess we'll roll right along into uh this final question and it, this one is 
for each of you, um, and it may be kind of a, a quick one. Let's say it's 5 p.m. on a Friday, you have no outstanding work, um, no COVID, it's the before times. How are you gonna spend that weekend? Oh my God, this great scenario. <laughs> I had a good answer, but that was completely based on the last year. And so we are, we are not bound by any restrictions. Yeah, Genie, Magic Wand, you can do whatever you'd like. Oh my God. Eggs, <laughs> Eggs Benedict, Bloody Mary, Financial Times weekend somewhere. That's, that's a Saturday morning. We're, then we're at 10.30 <laughs> a.m. on Saturday. Oh my God, e eating, drinking, walking around, meeting everyone that I like is my ideal. I think this is influenced probably by the current situation, but I would be on a train to somewhere. Very cool. That's the beauty of working in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I would be on a plane to meet someone, but then I'm going to get hate from all the environmental lovers here. Mm. Uh, but um, I was thinking, you know, <laughs> we live, we've been blocked in the UK, in UK weather specifically for a very long time. So I would go, um, the beauty of being in London is also being in the center of Europe. So you could uh, take a train, of course, but also take a plane if it's just for a weekend and go to a warmer place like where you are, Chris, for example. Bienvindo Portugal. That's right. Come on. Oh, that's very cool. Um, well, as uh, no, those, are, those all sound great, like great plans. And um, I know we're all hankering to get uh, to be post pandemic. Um, as we're wrapping up here, any shout outs, any tips of the cap that y'all want to give uh, before we uh, break down for today? Yes. The unsung hero of the arbitration station, Jan Kunster, our editor. Um, but also our researchers, um, who we really heavily rely on, Caleb Agnew and Dimitri Bendikoff, and also Rishi, which we haven't worked with because he's been busy being an amazing, successful practitioner. But um, we definitely rely on them. And that's been a new thing for the podcast is, is having support. And um, it's, it seems cliche to say, but it's, um, it really helps us and it helps us do our job and it helps us fulfill our so I think that I, you guys may have other people, but I think we definitely have to um, thank those people. Amen. We can only agree. And there's no point in adding more people, I think, because they are really unsung heroes. <laughs> Way more than we are. <laughs> no, I think that's fair enough. Um, well, that's, and that's very cool. And so, unfortunately, y'all, we have reached the end of our time here together. Um, the time always goes by far too quickly. Um, so I guess we will have to, to say farewell for now, um, at least until the next episode of The Arbitration Station comes out. And I look forward to, uh, to celebrating with each of you uh, in person when the world uh, reopens. Do you guys uh, want to sign us off? I'm Sadi Pati, and there's no disputing it. You are listening to The Arbitration Station on Tales of the Tribunal. I'm Brian Kodak, and there's no disputing it. You are listening to The Arbitration Station on the Tales of the Tribunal. I am Joel Dahlquist, and there is no disputing it. You are listening to the Arbitration Station on Tales of the Tribunal. Great, and we will see y'all next time. Yo, seriously, we probably could have talked for another two hours. Sadia, Joel, and Brian were just great to have on the show, and I'm so glad we finally got to work with them and have them part of our guest lineup. A big thank you to each of them and a tip of the cap to their viewers that are listening in. I hope you enjoyed what you heard here and that you'll maybe stay a spell. Come back for a few more episodes.
That's it for this week. Next week's show will be a one-on-one episode. Sorry, panel lovers, you got two back-to-back. We'll be back with more group interviews later. Don't forget to share the show with a friend or colleague. We are four episodes into season three, and we are marching ever closer towards 10,000 downloads, at which point we will be, hey, hey, we'll be celebrating big. But until then, I appreciate all of you that listen each week. The show couldn't and wouldn't happen without you. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by Mo Better Solutions. Show music is by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. And show interns are Matthew Cotherin and Ramatulahi Jallo. That's it for this week. Don't forget to tune into Disputes Digest tomorrow. And until next week, you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.